2: We're going to be covering a topic that, believe it or not, we have never covered on Go Green Radio in our many years of being on the air. We've never talked about Antarctica. And our guest today has just recently returned from Antarctica and has a tremendous story to share with us. Our guest is Nina Burley, and she is the national politics correspondent for Newsweek Magazine, one of my all-time favorites. And she was just fortunate enough to come back from a really enthralling tour. And I'm excited to hear her talk about what she saw, what she has learned about the continent itself, but also its impact as climate changes and as the continent is impacted by climate change, what that means to the rest of us. So welcome, Nina. So glad to have you on Go Green Radio today.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be with you.
2: Well, I'm curious, uh, as a national politics correspondent for Newsweek, how did you end up on assignment in Antarctica?
0: <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, I could answer it a number of ways. I've been on, um, on the Trump-Sanders-Hillary uh, beat for a while, and um, I will continue to be on it um, and also covering the other candidates. But I also do a lot of other things, and I have a lot of interests. I've written books about a lot of different subjects that have nothing to do with American politics. And I happen to be a member of the Explorers Club, which is one of these old New York City clubs that is a, um, uh, was started in the mid-19th century uh, by uh, men who were voyaging around the world in the heroic age of exploration. Um, doing things like trying to find the North Pole and being the first person to get to the South Pole. And and um, I uh, have been a member for a while. Um, they invited me to join after I gave a talk on a book I'd written about uh, scientific explorers in Egypt in 1800. And I'd given, I gave this lecture, and they said, well, why don't you come and be part of our club? And I said, well, I'm a journalist. I'm not an explorer. And they said, well... By definition, a journalist is kind of an explorer, and the kind of work that you do we consider you an explorer so I was very honored and I'm now a member and um, I sometimes i don't go to their meetings very often, but I was at a meeting one uh, not long ago, and a younger another younger member, and we're considered the younger members because and we're not that young because most of the members are quite um they're up there, and they've, they've you know navigated on. In their, they tell these kind of crusty old stories about navigating around Cape Horn in their sailboats. And uh, if you go to the members' secret members' room at the top uh, floor, they've got narwhal tusks and all these animals on the wall—stuff that you could never kill now. That some of them don't even exist anymore. And uh, so this younger member and I, a friend of mine named Charlie Whitnack, who, um who is a world adventurer, world-class adventurer, um, and does things like climbs mountains all over the world and leads treks and safaris and so on. We were sitting there talking about one night, and we we're like, well, what is an explorer in the modern era? What does it mean to be an explorer in a world where everything has been mapped and where you've been, you can see it on YouTube if you haven't been there, if you don't feel like getting up and going? So we're chatting about this. And meanwhile, I had befriended um, the owner of the Lindblad um, Expeditions Company and his staff. Um, They they run ships. uh, Lindblad runs ships all over the world on expeditions, tourist ships. And they have um, an Antarctic ice-cutting ship. It's an old Norwegian ferry that's been retooled. It's very luxurious. And it's it's an ice-cutting metal ship. And they, they run it through the pole polar sea in the summer and then in the austral summer aka our winter they take it down and, and and go from argentina to the peninsula of antarctica with tourists and um they were looking for people artists and journalists to come on uh, a trip that they were doing because it's the um 100th anniversary of the famous one of the most famous human survival epics of all time the Shackleton uh voyage the mm-hmm. of the endurance uh Shackleton Ernest Shackleton was an Anglo-Irish explorer and in uh, 1914 he set off in a wooden ship to be try to become the first man to traverse on foot the Antarctic continent uh wow. the south pole had already been uh walked to or discovered and he uh had not gotten that uh award he had not done that he had been beaten to that so he was going to do this other thing and they got to within 80 miles of the coast of antarctica and um and and then everything went wrong uh there's a, a phenomenon down there called pack ice um huge miles and miles and miles wide ice flows very thick that, um, move around the continent with the currents and with the wind. And his ship got stuck between a couple of these. And, the, and it, they, and they, these ice floes started to act like a, a vice. And they, mm-hmm. they first trapped his ship and then they, uh, over a time, uh, eventually crushed it into kindling. And his men had to abandon ship, roll across the sea in two, for two weeks in these lifeboats. Uh, and then found themselves on an island, a uh, frozen island, where they knew they would die. And then Shackleton and a few men accomplished this unbelievable feat of, again, rowing across what they call the Drake's Passage, which I experienced and which I will tell you about, one of the roughest uh, seas on the planet. And then he managed to get help from a whaling station. So that is a long answer to your question. I got invited to go as an explorer, uh, or for the reason that I, I've discussed. I brought my friend Charlie Whitmack and we we went on it to talk about what is exploration in the modern era and of course i have some thoughts and answers on uh, to that now
2: Absolutely, I bet, because uh, the terrain and the, even just the sea voyage, but also being on land, I know was quite an experience. And while you were on the land, um, I understand that there were a lot of ecological restrictions um, that were placed on your touring group while you were there. Talk to us a little bit about how they keep um, you know, the wildlife and the land itself protected when people do visit the area. Uh, sure.
0: Well, a little history. Um, you know, when these are parts of the world were first explored, beginning in the 17th century, 17th and 18th centuries, um, they, uh, the explorers in those days were, were down there, on you know, purpose of, for purpose of imperialism and commerce in addition to exploration. And they found, they reported back that the, there were these islands. Around Antarctica, covered with seals, and that the waters were just teeming with whales. And almost immediately, whalers and sealers set up camps down there and began slaughtering these animals by the by the million. Oh, I mean, over time, it, it, whale oil was like oil is in our mm-hmm. in our era. It was a uh, you know they used it for a lot of things, fuel and 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 um, for machinery. And so it was um, it was big business, and they they basically despoiled. The, they nearly rendered these animals extinct. Okay, so fast forward mm-hmm. to now. Now, now about 20,000 tourists a year go down in about 30 ships from, from, from Argentina. Um, tourism is very restricted. The Antarctica is not uh, owned by anyone. The countries have agreed through the Antarctic Treaty not to make land claims on it, to leave it as a pristine almost like a science lab. All Many countries have science bases on it. And and one can argue that these, some of these science bases do have kind of their land claim status, but they really are only doing science right now. They're not exploiting it. And more on that later. But so, when, when tourists, tourism is very restricted, and when you get off, we don't go on the continent. They take you to the peninsula, which mm-hmm. is stunning, and um, it points up towards Argentina. It's um, mountainous, uh, it's got glaciers, um, bays, coves, ice, icebergs that look like nothing I can even describe. I mean, I I'll try later to describe them, but uh, so you, they let you get off. You, you get on these zodiacs from the ship, and then you go to shore, and, and we hiked around a little uh, every day, and um, penguins would come right up to you, and so would seals. They We didn't kill them long enough for them to have in their minds a fear of, of humans. So they will come up to you, but you're not supposed to Touch them. You have to vacuum your clothes and shoes and everything before you get, touch the land. You are not to bring food. You are not to bring anything or leave anything, God forbid, leave anything behind. And you are not to step off the path. This is where we all sort of thought, though, this is, now this is quite ironic, uh, given that we nearly wiped out the, in, the mammals down here. If you step off the path and your knee, your foot falls in the snow to the knee, right? So you make a mm-hmm. hole in the snow, you could, Techn- you're, you're not to do that because a penguin, an individual penguin going to the shore to bring a pebble back to make his nest might stumble into that little hole and never be able to get out. And so it's very touching, this ecological micromanagement that we uh, have agreed upon as, as, you know, tourists and as people who are, you know, after these centuries of nearly wiping out the mammals. And so we live in a completely different era. And of course, there's a massive ecological issue, and we can talk about that. I'm sure you'll ask me about in the in the in the ice melt that's happening.
2: Right, absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, these science bases. Um, your article references that there are some 31 countries running about 73 scientific labs or bases. Um, employing over 4,000 scientists on the continent. Um, What can you tell us about the work that they are conducting?
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, what I concluded after this exploratory expedition was that the real explorers of Antarctica today are the scientists. I mean, we as tourists explored it, and and there is an aspect of what we were doing that we could call exploration, obviously. But what's really being done in exploration is... These scientists are out there um, studying everything. Um, The ice is two miles thick on the continent, and it holds in suspension the history of the planet going back many, many, many hundreds of thousands of years. And one of the most important scientific um, endeavors that uh, underway is that they are coring down through this ice, and they're bringing up... Uh, ice chunks that are 800,000 years old. And in those bits of ice are air bubbles that, of course, are 800,000 years old. And those air bubbles tell us what the makeup of the atmosphere was in those years, between now and 800,000 to a million years ago. So they now have a record of what the air was like on the planet Earth going back that long. And one of the things they've discovered is... um, you know, as, as predicted by climate scientists who say that the carbon emissions have, have, have changed the weather uh, since the Industrial Revolution, that human behavior has changed the weather. Um, they've confirmed that never had there been this much carbon in the atmosphere over these hundreds of thousands of years. So that's one of the science uh, endeavors. There's also all sorts of other stuff. There are people doing undersea exploration Um, you know, extremely perilous. They get in these dry suits and they go down. There's all sorts of life forms down there in that frozen water that that have not been categorized, classified. Um, On the pole, on the South Pole, there's a physics astronomy experiment called the Black Cube, and it is um, catching rays, cosmic particles that um, are um, I guess they're studying some physics experiment and I'm sorry that I can't explain what it is, but they're they're do, they're studying cosmic particles, um, and um, and you know many many other uh, studies are going on. So it's it's a real science lab for earth sciences and space science.
2: Fascinating. And I would hate to see that jeopardized because, um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn about not only the effects of climate change on Antarctica, and I want to know about that, but um, because the continent itself is undergoing some changes uh, that may affect the entire globe. Let's first, though, mention what's going on in terms of the way that you know, Antarctica itself is reacting to climate change. As you mentioned in your article, it's impossible to see, quote unquote, global warming in action in just a few days touring the continent. But what did you learn about the impact that climate change is having on Antarctica?
0: That's right. Well, first of all, with your eyes, with our eyes, what we saw was ice, ice, ice. And, um, you know, the most, strange and incredible landscapes. They look like some places look like Star Trek, just expanses of white and blue and ice structures that look like buildings off in the distance and um, surreal is the, you know, I mean there are not enough words to describe how the different shades of blue there are down there, but yeah, of course it's freezing cold. I mean, it's, it was warm summer, so relatively warm by their standards, but you had to have a parka on when you were out Um and you know, it was twenties in the twenties. Uh, in the winter, it's many, many, many degrees below zero. Um, and there was a there was a climate change denier on the ship who joked about how, well, I'm going to call Rush Limbaugh and report back that, by the way, it's still really cold down here. <laughs> and it is. However, not so fast. What's happened is the first of all, they know that the Antarctic Peninsula itself has warmed, temperature wise. Five times faster than the rest of the planet, and you already know from news yesterday or the day before that last year was the hottest year mm-hmm. ever recorded on the planet Earth. So mm-hmm. it's getting hotter faster down there. The other thing that's happening is the sea itself is getting warmer, and that's actually what's going. What's what's sort of the the problem that they've uh, that they're finding is that the sea, the warmed sea, is um, eroding underneath. The glaciers, which run from, you know, in the, inside the land onto the coast. And, uh, there's one particular glacier on the continent. The continent is, is divided into, it's covered with an ice sheet. There are two ice sheets on the planet. One is in Greenland and one is Antarctica. Antarctica is far greater in size. Um, it covers the whole continent. It is, it holds 90% of the world's ice, the continent, and 70% of the world's fresh water. So keep those numbers in mind. So mm-hmm. here are this, these two-mile-high, ice-deep, thick ice sheets over the continent. The continent has a mountain ridge in the middle of it, or it's higher in the middle. So the ice is kind of like it's, it's, it's angled down in two directions, right? And mm-hmm. the eastern side is, the bigger side, is, is pretty stable. But the western side is held in place. By a great big glacier or set of glaciers on the western coast, and what's happened is there's one particular glacier that is melting because and it's being eroded from underneath by this warm seawater, mm-hmm. and it is only holding its place because it was it's up against an underwater shelf. It's picture it like a foot holding back. It's holding itself up by this underwater shelf. Now the water has melted the ice so that it's no longer pushing up against this underwater shelf. And it's also going under the glacier because these glaciers have pressed down on the land so much that the land is actually below sea level. So water starts to gush in under the glacier. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you taking an ice cube and putting it in warm water. What's going to happen? Well, it starts to get smaller and smaller. And as that glacier shrinks and starts to tip off, fall into the ocean around the continent, that glacier was holding back the entire western ice sheet of Antarctica. So, you have to imagine, this is a catastrophe of unbelievable proportions. Um, It's not something that never has happened on the planet before, because the planet's gone through ice ages and melts before, but never has warming happened this fast. And what they don't know, and what they're desperately racing to figure out is, when It's not an if anymore. When does this event happen? When it starts to slide into the ocean? And what, you know, what is going to happen? And they're estimating like 60-foot sea level rises, I think, when this starts to happen. When it's done. Not when it starts to happen, when it's done. Um, And ironically, I mean, we can talk about this later, but just as an aside, my next assignment, the thing that I've written about for the cover this week, was I was in Miami doing a story on the politics of sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And I got to see up close what these mayors and county administrators on that part of our country are desperately panickingly trying to deal with because sea level rise down there is expected to happen without this Antarctic melt. Um, It's supposed to rise by 6 to 30 feet by 2100. That's a lot of, you know, big difference between 6 and 30. It's already going up. And the thing is, that doesn't happen in one day. It's not like on the New Year's Eve 2100, all of a sudden the water's 30 feet higher. No. Right. It's already happening inch by inch. So you already see, like when the tides are high in Miami, um, fish are in the streets of Miami Beach. And they wow. have to, they've had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars pumping out water already. And they've only seen inches of sea level rise yet. So everyone down there is fully aware now of what the implications are for these melting changes.
2: Well, and it's going to impact, you know, far more than Florida. I mean, even New York City is expected.
0: 150 million people are within four feet of sea level level right
2: now on the planet. In addition to you know impacting human infrastructure, which you know in just about every place we can, we have developed right up to the coastline. It's some of the most coveted you know real estate that you can have. But your article also hinted that there would be environmental uh, impacts as well, impacts on watersheds and wetlands. What are some of the environmental impacts that are expected in these coastal areas besides just the you know, impact on human infrastructure?
0: Um, well, you'll have to... I am not an expert on, on these things, but I can say that uh, absolutely a place like the Everglades, which is a freshwater and very delicate um, amp- ecosystem, and it's just on the other side of the city of Miami, it starts. The Everglades, when seawater starts to leach in, will be destroyed. I mean, if that, the day that sea salt water goes in and and takes over that part of the aquifer, I mean, not only will humans not be able to live there, but all of that will be changed. Um, so those wetlands are altered by salt water, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, that's, that's the best image that I can give you. I, I'm sure that there are many, many other implications. Animals that live in these, these places will not be, uh, happy because they don't really survive on, they're not saltwater animals. Right. Um, Vegetation will change, surely. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, changes are coming. Um, There is no doubt about it.
2: I was really interested in one of the points you made in your article and maybe this is just because I'm a former naval officer and so these things just immediately grab my interest but you mentioned that the British military is overseeing something called Antarctic Endurance 2016 Uh, And evidently that's to inspire a new generation of sailors and Marines and study the challenges of making decisions in a real world, arduous military training environment. And on previous episodes of Go Green Radio, we have talked about the increased militarization of the Arctic Circle on the northern part of the planet. Um, But tell us what you can about this project. I'm interested.
0: Well, I really don't think that it rises to the level of the stuff that's going on in the Arctic uh, at all yet. I mean, what's happening up there is, um, uh, you know, these nations are fighting over this newly de-iced land, and, uh, and there is no... Polar Treaty that says everybody lay off the way there is mm-hmm. done in the Antarctic. In the Antarctic, everybody signed on and said, "No, we're not going to make this our. We're not going to try to claim this." I mean, Argentines and Chileans have done a little bit of that. They they went made sure had they somebody argentini had a baby on the land, so there's an anchor baby, and it's all ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that I think that um that you know military exercise is really more like a. um you know, it's a commemoration of Shackleton, and it's an extreme, you know, p- extreme adventurers are into this, an extreme military, uh, you know, kind of a Navy SEAL kind of exercise. I don't think that it's a British muscle flexing, although now that you say that and thinking about the Falklands and the whole issue of, you know, the Argentines being very still angry about the Falklands with the mm-hmm. U.K., um, who knows? Maybe that is part of somebody's ridiculous, you know, effort to stake a uh, military claim or, you know, to show off to the Argentines that it's, you know, this is, the, this is British, uh, you know, Angle turf. But I didn't really think that when I heard about it.
2: hmm Well, and even if it's simply, you know, and I looked on the website for this uh, exercise, and it looks as though they're really going to be studying the condition before, during, and after of the individuals that are participating in this to see how those extreme temperatures and extreme conditions, uh, I mean, it's very different creating a bivouac, you know, in an Arctic environment versus, you know, the jungle or even the desert, you know, that our troops have been so used to over the past decade. And, um, and even studying that, you know, it's hard to do that under wraps in the Arctic Circle now because there's so much up there. There are a lot of military operations going on. So this would be a, a little bit more of a sheltered environment to conduct something like that. But I found it very interesting. But moving on, how do you expect, Nina, you know, you're covering national politics for Newsweek. How do you expect this recent tour of Antarctica and and what you absorbed from that experience to color or inform your coverage of national politics going forward this year?
0: Uh, That's a very good question. And um, when I went down there, I didn't think that it would have any effect on it. But I will say that it's already had an effect because... Uh, when I read about what was happening in Miami, um, and when my editor said, let's go down there and see what politicians are doing about this, because the stories that have been written about the disaster looming don't actually get into that issue as much. And so we went down, I went down and, uh, sitting on that beach in Miami beach, after having talked to the mayor about what was going on, looking out at the ocean And, you know, first thinking about how I had just been, how ironic that I had just been in this other part of the world that's Mm -hmm. melting, which melt will affect us so much. Um, It made me, I think that having gone down there has made me much more keenly aware of how how um, fragile our planet is. And, and I'm not, you know, I've never been an environmentalist of the sort. I mean, of course I care about the environment, but I've never actually had that, um, sense that as strong as I do now that we live in a fragile, delicate place, an amazing place, this planet. And, and that for our political class, our people, our leaders, right? Our leaders, mm-hmm. uh, to not be, um, cognizant of this uh, is um, is a dereliction of duty on a massive level, and I and I'm, I'm talking specifically about what's happening in Miami right now because there there is no acknowledgement on a federal level or even state level about what's going on down there. I mean, you'll mm-hmm. read you'll read my cover story this week if you're, you, know, you you said you like Newsweek, and I I, I do. I recommend <laughs> it to you because I was astounded. I I can't imagine how people like uh, George, I'm sorry, uh, Jeb Bush and and Marco Rubio, who Mm -hmm. are running for national office, not the president. And they are from this town. They live there. Miami, Rubio's house is on a street where I went there when it was raining, freak rainstorm in January. The water is up to, uh, you know, there's a pond growing in the middle of the street. Uh, Mm -hmm. suburban Miami, West Miami, uh, the sidewalks underwater, just from a day of rain. How these people who are from there, it's their community. How they can't be talking about climate change Mm -hmm. and the problems that are already happening um, is just mind-boggling. and and uh, I think think that it did change. It has changed my uh, coverage because I think it's important. It's one of the issues of our time it and if they're not addressing it is is a dereliction of duty. Well, as we're as going to leaders, talk more about that. Of, we're going to take a leaders. quick
2: commercial break. But when we come back, we'll talk about this uh, disparity between what local governments, uh, like the ones in Miami and in other coastal regions, are dealing with and the disconnect between what they're experiencing and having to pay for and prepare for and what's happening on the national scene. So don't go away, folks. We've got much, much more with Nina right after this commercial
1: break.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Nina Burley, and she is... Um, the national politics correspondent for Newsweek magazine. She's also an adjunct professor at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, the author of five books, and uh, and so much more. I mean, she's got quite the, the bio. You can read that on her guest page on our Voice America site for Go Green Radio. But before the break, we were just talking about... Um, how her experiences on a recent tour through Antarctica uh, may color or inform her writing about this year's national political scene. And we were talking about... Um, her recent trip to Miami and how they are already dealing with the influx of higher sea levels and uh, the incursion of, of sea waters into the city and how there are local governments uh, from New York City and big cities like Miami to even smaller communities on the west coast that are dealing with climate change adaptations already and at this point they sometimes feel like the Lone Ranger because there may not be the same focus at the state and national level on climate change mitigation and adaptation, and so it, it creates a lot of difficulties for them. And I have to ask, you know, Nina, you are a New York City dweller, and and it's a city that's expected to be tremendously impacted by rising sea level due to climate change over the next few decades. Um, how? Has your experience in Antarctica made you kind of view the need to get involved with or the need to educate your fellow New York residents about climate change adaptation public policy?
0: Uh, well, um, let's see here. Um, my fellow New York residents are, I think, pretty aware of climate change um, issues because of Sandy right um superstorm sandy and um uh, i mean you know 2012 isn't that long ago but p- so people still remember it very clearly that it was such a um an amazing um lifestyle disruptor for weeks right um mm-hmm. because it flooded that, that downtown area and there was no electricity for for weeks and uh I think people are very aware of uh New Yorkers are very aware of it. So any this whole area is because of that, because the inundation destroyed the Jersey Shore, and it affected um those outer uh areas of New York City, um, towards the ocean and uh, you know, beaches were um destroyed and people with property out there affected and uh and then, you know, the, this great city was shut down, um, mm-hmm. and it was unbelievable. I mean, I, my husband and I drove down. We live in Washington Heights, which is uh, the northern tip of the island of Manhattan. It's higher than the bottom. They call it the Heights, and that's why. it's up. it's up on these granite cliffs, basically, if you looked at it from afar. And that's where it, it's, it goes higher and higher as you go north. And we weren't affected at all. We look out on the Hudson, and we saw that all of these great big ships had come in, and we're harboring there um, during the storm, so that was kind of cool. And, and we did, of course, see the Hudson rise and come up over the street uh, down below our building, but not never did would it come up to our building because we were so we we're so much higher than the sea level up there. However, we did drive downtown after it happened a few days later, and um, we got below 34th Street. Uh, and it was dark, and from 34th wow. Street all the way down into, I think maybe 34th, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe it was 23rd, I can't remember, but everything from there down to Wall Street area was pitch black. It was nighttime, wow. and there were no street lights and we're driving, and we're just looking around thinking, these were in these dark canyons, and we're looking around, it still gives me chills, these were buildings filled with millions of people. Mm -hmm. In the pitch darkness, it was so, uh, post apocalyptic and so creepy, so zombie, um, you know, and it was at night that was freaky. In the daytime, it wasn't, I mean, we, we noticed more people uptown on Broadway than we did, uh, normally because people were coming up there to shop, I think, because everything was shut down downtown. Mm -hmm. So we, we, so we experienced it, and I think the New Yorkers have experienced that, um, are aware of it. Bloomberg was a very green mayor, and he yep. was always talking about these things. In fact, one of the studies uh, that have revealed or predicted how much money is going to be lost in property value, or how much property is going to be affected by flooding in Miami, was financed by Bloomberg. Yep. And um, Tom Steyer and some other environmental uh, billionaires. Actually, it was uh,
2: Henry Paulson, uh, Republican. Paulson, yeah, the
0: risky the risky business report.
2: Yep, yeah. exactly. And you know what's amazing about these things that you're describing, oh, awesome. Nina, is that you know local governments are really going to have to foot the bill for one of two or both things, right. uh, either cleaning up after these disasters right. which right. are exacerbated by climate change and rising sea levels or to replace infrastructure or to put in infrastructure okay. that would help to mitigate. Right. Uh, you know, the impact. And so, you know, in, you you referenced in the last segment, you had a, a shipmate with you in Antarctica who was going to report back to Rush Limbaugh. Hey, it's still cold in Antarctica, uh, right. you know, kind of as a dig to those who right. see climate change as a truism. clearly local communities are going to need the resources of the federal government. Do you see a clear path towards bringing America together on public policy that would address both climate change and mitigation and and climate change adaptation?
0: Well, that's the sub part of the subject of my article uh, this week on Miami and its leadership, its political class. Um, And, you know, I asked that question of the, people in Miami. I mean, how much do you need from the federal government? What can you get done on your own? And what I was, what I learned is that, um, they are, people are already mayors are going hat in hand to, to wealthy foundations because there is no money coming in from the state or the feds. Um, The federal government is broke, basically, so in a way they can't do anything money-wise, I guess, at least that's what I'm understanding. Uh, But more than that, it's an issue, it's a question of leadership, it's a question of discussion, of how to talk about this, and how to get people to talk about it, how to get people concerned, um, to, um, to make their leaders... Um, respond and to come up with, um, ways to deal with it, with this problem. You know, you can, people, people pull together, you know, it's like Amish barn raising. I mean, people pull mm-hmm. together, they can do things together, but they have to have a leader. And the thing that's happening down in Florida, if that's any indication of what's going to happen, their may, their, their leadership class, but, you know, the mayors are stepping up. it's a, it's a town of municipalities. There are a lot of mayors. May- there's a mayor of Miami, but there's mayor- there are many mayors of these municipalities around Miami. And um, the county government, you know, they're, they're doing, and the lawyers, the, and the civic leaders, the Chamber of Commerce, Republicans on the Chamber of Commerce talk to me mm-hmm. about this. They're very involved and very concerned. But there's no leadership. There's no kind of consensus leadership. There's still people running around saying, like Rubio, um, well, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, you know, what this is, or, you know, apparently the governor of Miami is such a climate denier that he, I'm sorry, governor of Florida is such a climate denier that he's actually decreed that the employee, state employees not talk about global mm-hmm. warming and use the words climate change. Mm-hmm. How, you know, in a state where this is already so far underway, and there's a horror movie unfolding of epic Per, per blockbuster horror movie, per, and they're not talking about it is it just it just blows my mind'm uh, well, not a green, you know I'm not a green activist I'm
2: a journalist you're a seasoned journalist though, and you have watched national politics for a long long time. Why do you think that's the case? What is behind this disparity between what people in Miami can see with their own eyes and their leadership? Not even being able to say the words,
0: what do I think is behind it? Well, okay, uh, I mean, I think some of it is obviously uh, uh, you know there's a, uh, fossil fuel uh, money and donors who don't want you know the Koch brothers finance the tea party and they're very uh, climate denier change denier they don 't want their industry to be disrupted. Um, and they don't want carbon you know carbon taxes, they don't want any change, so they're an influences that you know they influence people like Rubio, who needs finance uh, campaign finance money um uh I think that's part of it um you know they're, they're it's too bad that they've made the science into an ideological issue, like libertarianism, like you know you're you're not a libertarian mm-hmm. if you don't think that. The science is cocked up by scientists in a conspiracy to destroy the economy and make everything socialistic. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, so, that's what scientists sit around thinking about? Come on. I mean, and they are actually, people actually say that, these right-wing radio folks, and, mm-hmm. and you hear some of that, and, and I've been on radio, I've been invited to talk on other radio programs about these things, and i had radio talk, radio talk, radio guys say to me, well, isn't it a conspiracy? You know, come on. Sorry. So there's ideology, there's money, and and then the final thing, and probably not the least important in Miami, in any case, is just that Miami's in the middle of a big development boom, like high-rises are going up, and there is no sea-level rise code in the building code yet. Wow. Um, they have avoided dealing with the issue, even while they're talking about people are starting to be afraid that banks won't give 30-year mortgages. The insurance will be impossible to get for wow. buildings going forward, or they will just not get, I mean, the buildings will go up and then there won't be insurance. Um, so there is a big reason, and it's got a big dollar sign on it, for why you wouldn't want to talk about that in Miami, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the reason, I think. It's, it comes down to, and in fact, one of the county commissioners said, well, we just don't want to have be alarmist and scare off investors who think America is going underwater or, you're not, you know, Miami's going underwater. So that's, you know, that's it. I mean, they, they, people have to lead. And, again, it's the dearth of leadership, the void, people who have the pulpit who get up in these debates, these run, men running for president, that they don't get up there and say, well, you know what, this is happening. And even if they want to say, I don't know why it's happening, uh, this is happening and we need to deal with it. They aren't even doing that.
2: Well, and don't you find it interesting, and we'll have to go to commercial after I editorialize for just a moment, but don't you find it interesting that the same people who criticize the president for what he will and won't say in describing and characterizing our terrorist enemies are the ones who also will not comment or characterize (laughs) or say the words about what is attacking our coastlines. I find that very good. That's a very good analogy. Tremendously industry. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have much more with Nina before we uh, wrap up Go Green Radio. So please don't go away, folks. There's more right after this commercial break.
1: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess, how much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%?
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is Nina Burley. She is the national politics uh, correspondent for Newsweek magazine, and she's just returned from an amazing trip to Antarctica, and she's got some great coverage. You've got to look at Newsweek online. You can see some of the beautiful photos. Um, If you can pick up a copy because you really want to see this in print. Uh, Just gorgeous uh, photos and and tremendous article. And I asked Nina earlier, because she is a national politics uh, correspondent, how this trip to Antarctica and seeing um, that it's a place that The ice is melting even five times faster. It's warming faster than any other place on the planet. Uh, We've been talking about the ramifications of that for the entire globe. You know, while you were out there, Nina, you and one of your fellow travelers created a really cool video that's available uh, on the Newsweek website. Um, You were asking... What it meant to be an explorer in the twenty first century, and I would love for you to share some of the reflections that you heard from your fellow travelers as well as your own thoughts on that question.
0: Um, well, my own thoughts on it are, um, as I said, uh, I think that you know the scientists are the explorers of our our era and and also people who are, um, you know, the, the new exploration. And we see this at the Explorers Club when people come to talk. Um, they're often people who are, um, you know, trying to gauge the effects of man's activities on the planet, not just climate-wise, but all sorts of, um, you know, all sorts of places in, uh, in Africa where they're trying to protect gorillas and, uh, you know, we, lots of conservation. So I think exploration now... And I actually had the ship's captain say this to me. Um, he's an cr- old, crusty old German guy who has mm-hmm. drives this boat up from the ship. He says, "Don't call it a boat; it's a ship." He, he, he <laughs> navigates it in the polar sea, and then he goes down South America, uh, South of the Southern uh, Ocean, and he's been doing ice boat, ice ship driving for years. And he says, "Yes." We are not like those explorers of yore at all. He has nothing in common with Shackleton and with people who lived lived through these horrible, um, uh, you know, faced incredible peril. We don't have that. Explorers don't have that anymore. But what we face now is um, we have so many issues uh, in, in our behavior as humans, and the way that we interact, and wars, and and you know, the interaction with the environment, and these problems, these sea level. Problems and the, these, um, uh, you know, intractable, but uh, you know, problems of negotiation and diplomacy between countries, and you know, the exploration of today, in the explorers of today are really addressing these kinds of meta problems that our, you know, our species has, and we explore- the explorers are those who are looking, opening new doors. In understanding, uh, you know, our impact on the world and on, on each other as humans. Um, that's one thing. I agreed with that very much, but there are other, I mean, my, my colleague, Charlie Whitmack, who's in the video, who made the video, and he's a fantastic, uh, world explorer, uh, adventurer, I, I guess I should say. He's, he's done crazy things like biked across the Europe, Eurasia and to mm-hmm. get to, Mount Everest and he swam the Thames from its beginning all the way across the Dover, uh, all the way across the channel, uh, as part of this challenge that he set to himself. So he's been all over the world. Um, he says that it's in the video, you can hear him talking about, um, the exploration now is really about understanding. Uh, whereas before it was about, you know, sort of seeing new things and finding new things. It's now it's more about understanding and, um, in my case, again, having gone to Antarctica, I don't consider myself um, a real explorer, but I do think that having gone there and coming back with, I have a deeper understanding of something that I wouldn't have so much had had I just read about it and looked at it on Google and maybe read the, um, you know, the National Geographic. I'm sure they've devoted whole issues to Antarctica, and I, mm-hmm. I don't think that I would have the same understanding that I have of it now.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know... We know that, uh, you know, based on one of the experiments that you mentioned in the first segment, uh, you know, where they drilled down and and they pulled up an ice core out of Antarctica and they can see that there's never been more carbon in the atmosphere than there is today. Uh, And we know that we're only adding to that as we pull hydrocarbons, you know, out of the ground and burn them as fuel, uh, whether that's oil or gas or coal. Um, And yet... You know, we, going back to your national politics uh, side of the House, we know that uh, just this week, Sarah Palin endorsed Donald Trump, and I happened to be watching that on CNN. Uh, it was the Erin Burnett outfront show, and Trump supporters, right after Palin's speech, intimated that Sarah Palin has discussed her desire to become the Secretary of Energy. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, Nina. Her
0: desire to be Secretary of Energy—that's—that's um, that's, well. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I—I—I'm flabbergasted. I've not heard that. Um, that would be drill baby drill. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you like I—I'm speechless at the very <laughs> thought of it. But Trump would—I don't think Trump would make her his Secretary of Energy. I can't imagine that he would. Um, I think that um, people, you know, hopefully uh, he won't turn out to be as much of a buffoon as he's making himself out to be on the campaign trail. And that's all I want to say about that. And I honestly don't <laughs> Enough, think that he's... That's
2: perfect. Enough said, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm curious, as a professor at Columbia's uh, Graduate School of Journalism, how will you take this experience in Antarctica and turn it into a teaching moment for your students?
0: Well, I teach my students, um, I mean, the way, I guess the way I t- turn these things into teaching moments is there's always a challenge in writing an article at that length. And the whole time I was down there, I was nervous about it because I thought, how am I going to write this? What is the story? It's not a travelogue, but it is. It's about climate change, but it's not. It's about history. Um, it's about all these things. And, and And the challenge was to weave those things together, right? The history... Mm-hmm. The and the science, the facts, and then what I felt about it, and the literature which I was reading, and putting that in. You haven't. Re- I'm pu- I managed to get the rhyme of the ancient mariner in there because I'm an English major, and I, I love, love it. that. By the way, yeah, and that's my ending to the story. But how I wrote it, how I, um, how I put these things together, um, I've been told by a lot of people that they really enjoyed reading it, which makes mm-hmm. me feel good. So um, any time that I. Meet anytime that I find and meet a challenge in in structuring um, a, a long piece like this. Uh, that kind of uh, informs how I teach my students because they're what I'm teaching them is how to write the long-form magazine article. Uh-huh. That's part of their. They, they graduate from Columbia Journalism School. They 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 ha- the graduate students have to produce a 5,000 word article. Um and, and that is what this is. It's the type of article. And um, so anything I learn from that, uh from this when I'm on the you know, out in the field doing my own work is informing me in how to help them be better writers.
2: Well, it was a great article, and for our listeners, just to to recap it, it's called "The Big Melt: The Last Antarctic Explorers Are Seeking Answers Inside the Continent's Ice," Um, and you can check it out. We have a a link up on our website, but you can go to the Newsweek website and find it. Nina, it's been great having you on Go Green Radio and sharing your adventures in Antarctica and helping us to relate it to uh, climate change and topics in national politics. It's been fascinating, and we thank you for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in as well. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Next week, we'll be talking about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. We'll be dissecting that issue, so you'll definitely want to tune in. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.